Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And we are going to be reviewing uh, the first part of a two-parter, uh, Improbable Cause. Um, this is one of my favorites um, on all of Deep Space Nine. And uh, remember, just thinking about um, watching it the first time, I think this was really the moment um, it crystallized for me that Deep Space Nine had kind of, I think had come into its own, had struck a different tone uh, than TNG and was really interesting. There's this, and it's probably largely because I like Garrick so much, but I just really love watching this episode and I find it interesting and gripping every time I watch it. Well, um, you know, I've just finished watching the special features on TNG season three, uh, the Blu-ray, and there was a lot of stuff about Michael Piller and Iris Stephen Bear uh, in those special features. And apparently in the episode um, with Beryl, uh Life Support, Iris Stephen Bear and Ron Moore, who are co-executive producers on Deep Space Nine, uh, along with Michael Piller, were arguing to kill Beryl. And Michael Piller was saying, no, it's a mistake. You know, I, I don't want you to kill him, you know. But Michael Piller was hip deep in development of Voyager. So eventually he relented and he said, you know what, I haven't been here. You know, I haven't been doing the show. Uh, so if you guys, you're, you're the ones having the meetings and talking about it. And if, if you think this is the way to go, you do it. This is the last note I'll give you on Deep Space Nine. So, and it was, you know, hmm. so basically... After life support, it became essentially Iris Stephen Bear and Ron Moore's show. You know, that like Rick Berman was still the final arbiter, of course, but as far as running the show, Michael Pillar sort of receded from the limelight and they took it over. So I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, starting at this portion of the season, it becomes kind of a different show. Yeah, and and I and that makes sense because I've always kind of viewed this two-parter as a, you know, real break, both in terms of tone and energy for the show. And, you know, for better, or for worse, you know, even if, even if DS9 is not your favorite franchise, you can't fault it for a lack of an idea. And, you know, you can, it's clearly Iris Stephen Barron, Ron Moore's baby. Yeah. Like there's a, it, well, it from has, this point, yeah, yeah, it has their fingerprint. Like watching Battlestar after this, like you can see every idea that started in Ron Moore's head in a Deep Space Nine episode that eventually paid off in a BSG episode. So I, I did not know that, and that actually makes a great deal of sense. Well, you know, Deep Space Nine is not my favorite. Uh, and I don't want to make it sound like, well, gee, once Michael Piller left, the show got good. Because that's not fair to Michael Pillar. You know, once Michael Pillar started on TNG, the show got good. So yeah. clearly, you know, there are, there are more things at work than just one person uh, coming or going. But there does seem to be a big break and a big shift in tone. And it's probably because, you know, Ron Moore and Iris Stephen Bear got to basically do everything, you know. Well, I, I think one of the things we've always – we've been faulting the show for to this point is either a lack of focus – or a certain, you know, schizophrenia in the plots, where there'll be an A plot or a B plot that we find really interesting and will cut away to just a very different idea that has almost no relation to the other. And I, I think that might be the result of having, you know, three head writers and, well, one, and one who has a different, you know, TNG is just a tonally different and 
we love TNG here. I think our, our record on that is unimpeachable, but it, it's a totally different show. So when you have a TNG, you know, the person who championed TNG still, you know, like I just hope the ideas don't blend as well as maybe they hoped they would when they started. Well, actually, another element in those special features was talking about the concept of what they called pillar filler. And, you know, frequently in TNG episodes would run short because, you know, they would time it, the director, or not the director rather, but, you know, the the supervising staff would time the episode and think about how long it should take to film. But the directors would always come in and demand faster, more intensity, you know, like, yeah. So basically they'd run two, three, four minutes short on every episode. And Michael Piller became sort of the guy who created filler scenes. And that's not a bad thing because, in fact, much of the pillar filler in TNG was terrific. Like, it really added to the drama and deepened the characters and did all that stuff. So I'm wondering, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm wondering if there's an influence there. Like, maybe Michael Pillar uh, mandated or suggested that they always have, you know, B, C, and D plots just in case as opposed to developing the A plot more. And you know, I'm just wondering if that accounts for some of the schizophrenia between different seemingly unrelated plot lines. You know, that's just a, no, just I a can, conjecture. I, I can see that, yeah. All right, anyway, we should get started. So we have our horrible standard definition DVD of Deep Space Nine ready to go. Um, I suppose if you're watching recently, current, soon not too far in the future. You'll also be watching a horrible standard definition streaming version or a DVD or something. This is as good as it gets. It's too bad. Um, but the Blu-rays seem to be selling well. I guess if there's one thing, if there's any one thing we can find as a bright spot in the mess of the two recent movies, it's that perhaps it's driving sales of Star Trek Blu-rays. And that means we'll get more of them. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm trying to find a bright spot. So get your DVD or future people, get your Blu-rays or your HD streaming ready to go. And we will press play in three, two, one, press play. And as many Garrick episodes do, we start with... Garrick and the Doctor having one of their lunches. A, a completely non-homoerotic lunch, I assure you. I, I will say, at this point, whoever was giving Andrew Robinson notes clearly told him to dial it down because it's nowhere near as drippingly... Well, I don't even know what word I'm looking for here, but the first two seasons of these interactions were pretty damn gay, and I, I say that with some authority. Yeah. <laughs> no, I... I I don't know if it was in the DS9 Companion or if it was on Memory Alpha, but someone gave him notes. They said, you have to tone down the homosexual undertone. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. But he still kept it funny. Yeah. I kind of like that they're debating Shakespeare and the value of Shakespeare, especially um, you know, watching some TNG recently. You know, Picard loves him some Shakespeare. I I don't know if that's like if it's like a conscious callback, but I, I enjoy them sitting around discussing things. It's a good character moment. By the way, he just called that Coberian a Tellurian. 
It, it's shocking, I know. I know, I can... <laughs> I only know that because I just read it on Memory Alpha. So someone who wrote that on Memory Alpha actually knows that. And that's actually scarier than anything we've done. Yes, yes. I will say, uh, one, one thing I like about the development of, Besh, of Bashir into an actual doctor and not just a lecherous skirt chaser is I find these scenes a lot more fun to watch. Yeah. You know, it, it seems clear to me that they still haven't quite figured out the doctor yet. Yeah. Because there's this episode, um, Distant Voices, which goes into his head and talks about like how he's got this like fear of success and blah 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 but of course we know having watched Deep Space Nine that in the future it's going to be revealed that in fact he's genetically engineered and he's a superman and he's really dialing down things in order to not be conspicuous right which is totally belied by that episode right and anyway because in that episode you know, they hadn't written it yet. yeah they hadn't written it yet so it's like oh this is the deep insight into your soul but they have figured out a better tone for him. They they just haven't figured out a backstory for him. Yeah. Which I guess if you want to talk about <laughs> Ron Moore stuff, uh, figuring out a tone before figuring out a backstory does seem to be one of his fortes. Yeah. <laughs> He's. He, I refer we, you to yeah. Battlestar Galactica seasons three and four. Yeah. We know Bashir was a Cylon the whole time, honestly. All right. So the plot has begun in earnest now. You know, the promenade has had a lot of explosions on it. Yeah. It's a pretty dangerous place, apparently. Um, something I liked about both the scene with Garrick and the scene with Kira is I think the actors have come into their own enough and the writers have a good enough rapport with them that the patter scenes like that are actually fun to watch. They, they're, you know, of a piece with, you know, the TNG scenes, you know, riding on a turbo lift, talking about the day, you know, Kira and Bashir discussing the corrosive atmosphere of the ambassador suites. Like, it all... It was a, it was a nice non boring, but still low key fake out for the big explosion that was coming. Yeah, as far as explosions on the promenade go, I mean they look fine. It just kind of, I wonder if this is the uh, what is it, the Sword of Stars? <laughs> anyway, um, our faithful listeners will know we just reviewed uh, Destiny. It's a particularly luminous comet, isn't it? It is. You know, I forget where I was reading this, but someone was saying that the Deep Space Nine theme song is by far their favorite. All apologies to Jerry Goldsmith. That's just wrong. I'm sorry. I've I've always liked this one. I, I'm not going to say I like it more than Next Gen, but I, I like the I like the song. It's just kind of slow and boring, and actually the visuals are kind of boring too. It's just yeah. I like Voyager much better than this, as far as theme music and theme visuals. I, I, I do like Voyager's opening. I have a soft spot in my heart for DS9. It's just... Doing sort of a stately circle around the station, just... I'm, I'm not... I don't, I'm not saying I know what I would have done differently. I'm just saying it, it just kind of bores me. It always has. Um... Maybe they could have followed some ships. Plus there's sort of the jagged edge you can see on the station with the composited space background. I don't know. Maybe an HD to look better. 
Imagine HD, it'll look beautiful. Well, but there's only so much in the model. That's the other thing. These windows are actually pretty large on screen, and it's just clear that they're just lights, you know? Like, the the TNG opening had the little, the little animated, animated people yeah. in the background, which really helped sell the scene. And it just never becomes anything more than a model for me. Okay, anyway, Garrick's shop has been torched. All those beautiful clothes destroyed. When is it that Chief O'Brien gets his funky patch? As opposed to his black pip. Oh, the little, like, yeah. Looks like a little circuit board. Yeah. That I don't know. Now, one thing I've started noticing, it happens in Through the Looking Glass, and it just happened now, is they'll totally reveal the guest actor and kind of spoil the story a little bit. Right. You know, because in Through the Looking Glass, it was like, Anne, what's her name, as Jennifer. And it's like, oh, man, why did you tell me that, you know? And so now they've just shown us that an Aberntain is going to be in the episode. It just, I don't know, I think they should keep this stuff secret. Like, Credit them at the end. You know? Or at least credit them just as their, the actor's name. Because I doubt even I would have caught Felicia Bell watching it the first time through. Yeah, that's true. So, directed by Avery Brooks. <laughs> A simple tailor. See, the part, part of what I enjoy about these two episodes, this pair of episodes, is just scenes like this just really crackle. The, all the actors are, like, particularly, I think, between Garrick and Bashir and Garrick and Odo, there's just a lot going on in, in not a lot of dialogue, and I'm not, I'm not bored for a moment. No, so. I agree. Um, and here's a joke about a Noskin. <laughs> of course, there's, there's always, always Major, Major Kira. Kira. Uh, yeah, so I agree with that. There's definitely some nice uh, humor. So this is written by Rene Echeverria uh, off of a story idea from, I guess, a spec script. Um, no, I I know I've ragged on Rene Abergenois as far as romantic acting, and I firmly stand by my belief that that is not his strong suit, at least in this character. Yeah. The character he's created here just isn't suited to it, but... It's terrific for hard-boiled interrogation. Oh, totally, yeah. Stuff. I mean, and he's very good at it. And, and he's good at he's he's good at just the incredibly dry humor. If Major Cure wanted you dead, you would be. That that's just a great line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. I, I want to assemble an MP3 of every like dismissive grunt Odo's ever given because I bet you they span the entire chromatic scale and you can make music out of them. Yeah. There's a YouTube video on that. You'd probably get a million hits. I don't know what good that does you, but you'd probably get a million hits. I really like Garrick's outfit here. The the, the cutouts um, along the shoulders look really good and looks like there's, there's a lot of visual texture. So do you think there's supposed to be some kind of uh, parallel to the teaser as far as the um, Shakespeare stuff? 
Is it that Garrick is engaging in the same kind of farce that Julius Caesar was engaging in? You know, not seeking help or not thinking that you know there's a real threat or a mm -hmm. real danger. You know, I never thought about it. Obviously, there's a there's a payoff for the line in the next episode, but I never thought of it being a through line for the story. Though I, this is some of my favorite dialogue um, in the episode, maybe even the series of the the moral. What what's the real moral? of the boy who cried wolf. It's yeah. just, it's a great delivery and it cracks me up every time I watch it. That's a little graphic for children. Wouldn't you say, <laughs> you know, the kind of children you bring to a torture session and eat live Tuspa. And stuff. Right. Are you sure that's the point doctor? Yeah, this is terrific dialogue. Andrew Robinson, of course, is selling the hell out of it. Yeah. One of our favorite actors on the, sh on the series and, of course, that's the punchline. You should never tell the same lie twice, uh, which does fit with what we've gotten of Garrick so far. So, I, you know, I really like – I think Renee Echevarria has a flair for dialogue. Yeah, and there's something about um, Deep Space Nine, I would, I would argue, even more than Next Gen in its sort of attenuated theatricality. There, there's, a, there's a bigger melodrama going on, and I think lesser actors – would not, and we've certainly seen it, not be able to handle the environment or the dialogue. And Andrew Robinson, and we're in another scene with uh, Rene Auberjonois, they're both perfect for it. They, they just, they bring this sort of heightened sense of drama to the way they deliver their lines that helps sell this slightly more dramatic place. Now, everybody's much snottier and much more on edge on Deep Space Nine generally. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's fine. And of course, yeah, the, the height of snottiness is the Garrett character. I like that he changed. He's in a different uh, color-blocked shoulder contrast pattern. It's like a vest. Yeah. And it's almost like an animal print, you know, like he's rocking the leopard sleeves. Yeah, the way they uh, just kind of smile at each other. Well, there's a lot more sarcasm in this dialogue than I ever remember there being on on these on next gen. Okay, we're we're getting into the the episode, the two parter, you know, the two parts are are connected because of who it's about, but they're not connected in terms of what the episodes do. This middle part of the episode, the mystery bit, is not the best in the world. I, I've never liked the Star Trek invention of these species use these tactics, and because we found this tactic, we can infer this species did it. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. That's always it's like well, it's like only the whole the, planet is reduced to one way of doing things. right. Only Romulans use molecular decay devices. Wouldn't that be the perfect reason for a non-Romulan to use molecular decay device? Um, so the way they jump to the Flaxian being their guy is a little cheap. That being said, I again really enjoy this scene. There, it, it feels like you know, a, you know, we, we, you know, I've said you know, Necessary Evil is one of my favorite episodes. I like a good, you know, stab at noir, and th this has that feel of the hard-boiled detective and the bad guy who knows you can't catch him, so he's mocking you and. Yeah, I like the prop, too. I like the idea of someone who sells perfumes and chemicals and all this stuff. And, yeah, you know, 
again, it's a great scene for Odo. Can you describe this fragrance for me? I like the design on this alien. I mean, it's a west forehead. He's a he's a man with a forehead, but the little tendrils and the no, doodads it's, it's in the hair. It's, it's a fully realized look. It's richer. He looks like a sea creature to me. Yeah. I think the most effective Star Trek aliens are the ones that mimic a life form on Earth exaggerated to a bipedal person. So, you know, Cardassians are lizards and... You know, like, so I, I appreciate this. It's it's like a much better idea than the the fish people we got in a uh, um, manhunt. This is Carlos La Camara, and I have to say he's quite good. I like the way I like his sort of slightly swishy. He's he's somewhat similar to um, Kivas Fajo. Oh yeah, like a little fay. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah. That's an episode I really love upon watching, again, you know, more and more. Not when I watched it on this season three Blu-ray. Yeah. It just, that's a terrific episode. <laughs> and the way he's delivering the lines. And, and the, the hand gestures with the eyedroppers, it's just, I mean, it's a master class in prop work and comic timing. A little, <laughs> little pass under the nose, it's just perfect. But on the other hand, she's quite fond of spicy things. Yeah, you know, so I agree with the slight artificiality of the mystery, but if it affords us the opportunity for scenes like this, I'm willing to forgive it. Well, also, there's there's a great tool in acting where the actors know more than you, where you know more than the actors, or people. when people aren't letting on what they really know, it automatically adds subtext. So it's quite clear that... He knows what's happening. Odo knows he knows. He knows Odo knows. And they're not trying to show it. It's all this, you know, brinksmanship and outmaneuvering. And it's fun to watch. Also, are there really three perfumes that if you mix them, they make a heart attack gas? I mean, come on. Who's, what, what, what is this, Batman? <laughs> well, I mean, this guy is smuggling chemicals. Yeah, true. So he's smuggling them in these perfumes, I guess. Got sort of a half lapel suit. <laughs> I would like one episode that just clarified what the procedures for search and seizure on Bejor or the Federation anywhere are, because the rules seem pretty lax. Well, I guess since these are non-Federation citizens, you can do whatever the hell you want. Apparently. It's sort of like drone strikes on Pakistanis or something. I guess. It's like, they're not Americans, who cares? Let's not start talking about drone strikes in relation to the new movie, though. <laughs> so, Garrick has uh, made a leap of intuition... Now, this does happen somewhat frequently with the darker characters in Deep Space Nine, where they sort of invite themselves along on right. missions. Right. And it does strain credulity just a little bit. <laughs> you know, and again, it's what. It, thinking about the recent uh, Star Trek movie. I'm happy to allow the occasional leap in logic or the 
you know, too neat coincidence that propels a story. If it is ultimately a good story and it provides me with fun and entertaining and engaging drama, as it does here. The, another back and forth scene between Garrick and Odo is always welcome. And it's just, the humor is there. It's like, if you'll permit me to get on with my dog investigation. It's just, it's just a good line. Well, so. and I don't mean my criticism to sound too, uh, too cutting because, of course, he is tagging along with Odo. And plays by his, by own, his own rules, rules anyway, right. right. You know, he's given some latitude by Cisco. It's just, you know, when, like, Cork suddenly invites himself along, you know, on this or that mission. And granted, they always make the case that Cisco is allowing it because he thinks Cork will have some, you know, worthwhile role to right. play or something. It just happens pretty frequently. Yeah. I'm just, just pointing it out. No, I agree. Okay, the Flaxian ship model. Is that a reuse? That looks new. I've, I've never seen... It doesn't conform to any known ship parameters in my right. database. Right, it's not the little triangular <laughs> omni-ship. Yeah. Nor is it the... Oh, God, now I'm going to say it. Is it Torellian? Torellian. Torellian plague ship, right. which has been reused multiple times. Wow, there's another outfit. We're getting quite a, quite a fashion display. It's like... <laughs> I like this one best of all, actually. I do. I like the colors. It's kind of um, Bushido, like <laughs> right, samurai. Right. It, yeah. <laughs> I like. I really hope this episode all happened over one day, and Garrett just felt the need to change before the next event. <laughs> Here's another. Uh, one race uses neutrino inverters. So it, it's a little. It's a shortcut. Yeah, you know, it's a storytelling shortcut to avoid having two or three minutes of actual investigation. investigation. I do like the kind of fake out we got in this episode, uh, in this scene right here, where like you expect the episode to now be a chase, and there's going to be hunting the Flaxian to wherever they're going, blah 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 blah, and they cut it short. So it was a good dramatic device because you kind of expected, like the audience was as surprised as the characters. I think at that point. That's another great line. The truth just, is an excuse for lack of imagination. And you see what I'm saying here? Like, I think a lesser actor, and or in a different show, that line would be so over the top. Like, speaking of Batman, there there's a level where these are Batman villains. These kind of you know obsequious, slightly effete, um, very cultured people being evil, and somehow it works here. Okay, one question I have is the the Tal Shiar agent says. His execution was perfectly legal. What interstellar agreement permits for the unilateral execution of people without a trial? I just I just want to know what document the Federation signed, in good faith or otherwise, that says this was okay. Just saying. Okay, I like... She says cobbler. Like, cobblers exist in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, t to be fair, why would you need a cobbler? Why, I mean, would tailors exist? Well, I mean, a tailor... I, I get what you're saying. Like, like I think a computer could measure your feet pretty well. Right. I suppose a, a holodeck should be able to measure you for a suit, too. So we're seeing our first look at the Romulan costume redesign. It's not my favorite, but it is better than the... Well, just about anything's better than the TNG Romulan costumes. 
it looked like a walking couch, you know, like sidling its way into the room. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd make a joke about the new uniforms. I wonder if they made the joke before the redesign of the right. uniform. Well, I know Ron Moore asked for the redesign because um, he didn't like the original next-gen Romulan uniforms, and he is correct in that opinion. So the plot is thickening. You know, Somehow the Romulans are involved. Did he have the ISS model uh, before this episode? I don't remember. I know he always had, He's the, always had the Daedalus, Daedalus class, class, and I think he always had the um, uh, Nebula class. Somewhere in there. Yeah, this is good dialogue. It's you know it the mystery uh, for our complaints about the you know the way they get to the Flaxian and the Romulans are involved is a little bit of a shortcut. But this is good dialogue. It shows that there's a thought process going on for the plot and the characters. They're sussing things out and examining possibilities. It makes for a good story, I think. I do like this tension. You know, Odo has sources that he's not willing to reveal. You know, lines of investigation that he's not willing to reveal. And Cisco respects that. Yeah. Well, it, it it adds a little depth to Cisco's defense of Odo, who otherwise, from a Starfleet perspective, is just an obstreperous jerk sometimes who doesn't follow any rules. So it's like when it's like, oh, he has access to resources a Federation security chief would not, that justifies his ongoing presence on the station. Yeah, this cave looks familiar. Well, they've re- they've, now it's blue. <laughs> I okay. actually really like this scene, if only because of the guest actor coming up, Joseph Ruskin, who was the... Um, like ringmaster in the Gamesters of Triskelion back in the original series, mm. and he just has a killer voice. Yeah. Oh well, not just a voice, a great look too. Oh yeah, and just just the, the like just the eyes and uh, it's so great. So Odo has a sort of deep throat source because he's also um Grilka's uh, major domo in a uh, yeah. House of Quark, and again he just. It's a great presence, and I always like when they bring back guest stars in other roles because it's just, you know, it shows a respect for the work they do. And well, pre- but it's fun for fans to go. To, oh, I know, I know who that. is who yeah. is that? Yeah. In the days before Memory Alpha and the Star Trek Encyclopedia, it would right. have driven you nuts in like so 1995. Right, so you figured it out. Although this wouldn't be too hard. You know, <laughs> His you voice is like, pretty distinctive. Yeah, I know who that is. And and again, th- this scene, it's so. There's just something heightened about the staging and drama and lighting. Like we have a li- we have a figure literally cloaked in shadow, <laughs> despite this like blinding light source in this cave. <laughs> but it, but somehow it all works because everyone is just it just there's there's a style that that's what I've been looking for. Like you accept the style of this episode and everything makes sense and it's carried by the skills of the actors and the writers, but, you know, there's a... Uh, and I, I don't know if I ever actually want to know what the Cardassian metric <laughs> is, because I'm sure it would probably upset me. Pity. You are so good at it. Well, I like that line because it harks back to previous DS9, and it gives you enough information to know that this is like a Cardassian from Odo's past that right. he used to uh, interact with. You know, it's just... 
it's good crisp writing. Yeah. I enjoy watching episodes with subtitles because they include the <laughs> air. Quotes, yeah. yeah, and you didn't really need a. You could hear them in his voice. He was he was putting that in quotes. Well, but if you're hard of hearing, yeah, it's yeah, good, just, good that they're there. Yeah, so that you can. They should use italics for the real sarcastic stuff. As long as they're not using a um, air quote, the, the quotes to indicate emphasis, because I hate that when people do that in signs. It drives me crazy. Oh, well, that's not what it's for. I'm aware. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> you should underline it. Maybe boldface. Yeah. But I don't think boldface would work because this it's subtitle font is a, already a bold, bold font. I would accept italics for emphasis. That's fine. I think italics can indicate emphasis. Air quotes do not indicate emphasis. Yes. Air quotes indicate double meaning. Irony, yeah. See, it's not just Star Trek you're getting here. You're getting a little English lesson. We're a full-stop nerd shop here at Trek Nevabble. We've commented on the font. We've commented <laughs> on the grammar. You know. It's just the way we roll. Yeah, I agree. I like this outfit the best. I like the, like... It's a good color on and, it. And that crisscrossing, like groups of lo- overlapping lines just look really cool. I imagine in HD that has to look amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm sure this whole set does. You know, it's this green backdrop, which I I take it is supposed to be some kind of computer core or yeah. something. Uh-huh. So, 27 minutes in... We learn that Garrick blew up his own shop. It's good music cue. <laughs> and again, there's there's this sardonic humor that pervades, especially interactions with these two, where even when they're being serious, deadly serious, there's a, you know, a wry wit. So lines like, I don't think I've ever seen that expression on your face. It's just a great line, and it just makes it so much fun to watch. Uh, for is this Avery Brooks' first directorial yes. outing? Yes, yes, yes. It's good work, especially you know in this scene that the the cutting of the close-ups is is very good. It's very tense. Well, it's you know I'm looking at the camera work, and there is a question about how much of that is a director versus how much is a cinematographer. But there are some nice camera moves. I think a lot of this stuff is being done on Steadicam or something because it kind of. It shimmies back and forth a little bit on some of the close-ups. And I'm not saying it's distracting, but it's uh, – do you see what I'm talking yeah. about? Like it'll it'll move in as if it's being moved moved yeah. on a Steadicam rig by an operator as opposed to being on a dolly. Like the camera doesn't quite follow the actors perfectly – that almost works for this scene, though. It's you know, there's well, a, it's a little off kilter. Yeah. It's a little you know, there, there's a certain energy to it, a certain unpredictability. Or like even like in the close-ups of Odo, it doesn't follow like strict composition lines. It's not like his face is dead center or in the approved place left of center. It fills the space, but in a slightly off-center way. 
Well, and, you know, doing it like this, yeah, this is clearly a steady cam yeah. because there's no dolly that would focus in on a panel like that. Um, doing it like that, it does lend an immediacy to it, like yeah. you're there. It's just... And it's, it's not shaky cam. Well, you can you can overdo it, Yeah, you know, and I don't think it's overdone. No. Take notes, Abrams. This is what we're talking about. Ah, so here is Mila. Now, is this an Abertain's wife or something? Housekeeper. Housekeeper. There's a lot of housekeepers with intimate knowledge of galactic politics in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Well, two anyway. Who, who are these other ones you're thinking of? Uh, in... Uh, since the father, right? Oh yeah. Oh um, that was the nanny or the like. Uh, Kalest. Yeah. Oh yeah. Skimbeck was too fat. Um, in the books, um, there, there's a a book that Andrew Robinson wrote. Actually, it's supposed to be a follow up to the uh, end of Deep Space Nine and the rebuilding of Cardassia. Yeah. It posits that Mila was secretly Garrick's mother. Yeah, you know, I, I can certainly see. A... You can see them acting it that Very way. Very strong relationship. Yeah. You know, so this episode confirms that his first name is Elam. Right. You know, because we had the sort of mysterious multiple lie story right. from the, the previous Big Garrick show. And he changed again. This is like his fifth outfit, This maybe fourth. But still... I gotta say, the costume designer for Garrick's stuff actually, I think, did a really great job of like I've always liked the Cardassian fashions, but specifically for Garrick, there's a if all of those walk down a runway at once, you would buy them as part of the same collection, even though they're different colors and fabrics. It makes sense. Like this looks like this is Garrick's taste, like contrasting colors and patterns with a shoulder emphasis, like that. It's a it's a defined look. And for a show that can sometimes really whiff on civilian fashion, it always makes me happy. So that was a good joke, you know. Find the find the isolinear rod and eat it. <laughs> okay, this is a little gay. This is still a little gay. Uh, <laughs> Men, grown men giving each other chocolate. A little bit. A little bit. It was just the ways, but these were meant for you. <laughs> yeah, I think they've just installed a split diopter for all shuttle sequences now. Yeah. It's not actually being used very well here because the focus point on Garrick is his shoulder. Yeah. And not his face. Uh, speaking of that, I was I was just watching a motion picture with a friend who'd never seen Star Trek before, and his entry was motion picture, and we had to like stop the movie so I could explain the split diopter because he he had never seen that before in modern <laughs> cinema. <laughs> yeah, it was big in the seventies. I mean, I understand why they're doing it for these kinds of scenes from that angle. You know, otherwise you have to do this. You have to cut yeah. between. So we're at 32, 33 minutes, and we're finally getting sort of the Anabrantane stuff. 
So, something I appreciate the way they handled Garrick, and I'll use as a counterpoint um, the backstory for Tom Paris, which always annoyed me, is I always wanted to know what the hell Tom Paris did. I understand I kind of mentally just rounded up Nick Locarno to being Tom Paris, but I kind of like the way they never act. Like, I enjoyed the teasing here and the misdirection, and because I think it suited the character, where there is no actual explanation for Garrick's exile that could be as much fun as the amorphous thing I'm imagining in my head. Yeah. No, they did eventually explain Tom Paris. Um, in the books, I think. Was it Pathways? No, I think... I mean, they certainly explained it in the books, but in the show, so in canon, mm-hmm. uh, it was a briefer explanation, but they did cover the main points. You know, like someone died in an accident, he covered it up in a report, you know, yeah. then was found out and cashiered out of Starfleet. Which was not why he was in prison. He was in prison because of joining the Maquis. This is just such good acting and such concise dialogue and like the the sparring where they're like trying to get under each other's skin and like poke at vulnerable spots. It just it's fun to watch. There's a handrail. <laughs> no seat belts, but we do have a handrail because the Federation is ADA compliant. <laughs> Just in case anyone needs to take a shower in here. <laughs> is the floor covered in the, the rubber mats? Yeah, see, now this dialogue, which I really like, it belies his whole love for Kira thing. And I like this interpretation better than him having romantic feelings for Kira, you know. I I mean, I I suppose they're getting at the fact that he does care for someone. Right, and I wonder if Garrick has sussed that out for himself. Like, is he intentionally poking what he hopes is a sore spot for Odo? Oh, I think, yeah. I mean, if anybody is just going to sense right. it's the, gonna be the frisson yeah. in right. the room, right. it's going to be Garrick. And I like the way this conversation ends. If there were, I wouldn't tell you. And that would be a wise decision. <laughs> there, there, it, it, it diffuses the tension in a way that doesn't nullify it. It's like both know that there's not going to be a resolution out of this conversation, they're just engaging in it for its own sake. So it found a way out of the conversation that didn't require a bigger moment. I like the Sokutogram because I totally spotted the silhouette of the Warbird in the pattern before the Warbird appeared. Yeah, yeah. That made me very happy. It's an interesting shot of the model. Yeah. I wonder if they've composited some kind of cap on where the rod would be to hold the model. Usually the rods are underneath. Yeah. They could have an actual cap, a physical cap on the model. Well, we've seen the underside of the ship before in Mod's eye, so maybe they have a, like a one they can put on top. So I know there's an Enterprise model that's mounted from the top. Now this corridor... Is this from um, Future Imperfect... Or well, maybe I mean, face the, of the enemy. The design cues are certainly similar. 
See, this would have been a great moment had they not flagged it. Yeah. <laughs> Such... Again, it's it's like watching a Bond movie. They're, they're, like he's he he could be petting a cat. For he God. should have turned around in his chair. <laughs> he really should have. But it doesn't feel over the top or stupid or cheap. It just feels interesting. Like like there's a reason people like this style of drama in the first place. I think there's a lot to recommend it. And deftly handled, it's very interesting. And I love Anafrentain's outfit. Like this like doddering old man cardigan like you should be feeding ducks it's great well and it's nice that garrett basically calls him a big fat ass <laughs> yeah he's in like cardassian knitwear uh, just Adam, we're not saying a lot at this point just this this scene is so much fun like you know Thinking about it, not a lot happens in this episode. Like, obviously, Garrick's shop gets destroyed. We know there is a mystery, but we don't get terribly far in investigating it until the next episode. Yeah, I'm not well, bored. Uh, I'm apparently it wasn't planned as a two-parter, and they felt that this episode was kind of weak on its own, and that they needed to develop it further. Uh, so it's a good thing that they did, and I think that allowed for more breathing room for some of this dialogue. You know, this whole scene really kind of reminds me of uh, unification. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of like the secret person in a Romulan office behind the right. scenes manipulating things. Um, do you think it still? Ha do you think it suffers from the same too complicated by half problems of unification? Mm. Like here, I mean, not to spoil it in case anyone hasn't watched the Dice cast yet. They're going to be attacking the Founders, which feels fairly straightforward. I like we'll, – we'll get to this more when we review that one. But I, I like the callback to the – you know, oh, the oh, do they mention the Arise system yeah. here? so he's yeah. saying fleet of Cardassian and Romulan ships traveling to the Gamma Quadrant. Not exactly. Yeah, they basically reveal at the end of this episode that they're going to strike the Dominion. And, you know – that's it's good. Do you know what it is? I think that the focus of the episode has gone progressively broader in a way that is really engaging. It starts with the mystery about Garrick. It expands to a mystery involving the Romulans, and now it pays off. Both there's gonna we're obviously going to get something out of Garrick's past. There's something involving the Dominion now. Like it, the episode got bigger and bigger. And here's the explicit mention of the Arias system from uh, the Defiant. So it. It re watching this moment the first time through, I really felt compelled by this dialogue because there was a sudden sense of scope to the story. Well, it's referencing, you know, the beginning of season three with, what is it, the Search. Search. Uh, and it's referencing the Defiant, like you said, because the Maquis had uncovered, you know, the Cardassians building a fleet. Um, you know, in some ways this does further my sort of it's only mild irritation at how similar the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar are. Yeah. Because um, now they're working together on the same ships, uh, and Romulans are taking orders from, I guess, who someone who is now the putative head of the Obsidian... Sorry, the... Yeah, the Obsidian Order.
So we're getting some dialogue, which is explained in the beginning of this episode. Yeah, and so the idea is that Inaverantine is back, baby. You know, and he's he's large and in charge. Always burn your bridges behind you. I like that they discuss the uh, antipathy and differences a little bit between the two agencies. I love Paul Dooley's line deliveries. He 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 flits back and forth so easily between like you know doddering old man in a cardigan to incredibly terrifying spymaster that it's just, it's just awesome. So the the dialogue delivery by Andrew Robertson finally showing some real emotion. Yeah, I I always read that as like the one honest thing Garrick has ever said in this entire show. I'm glad they didn't create like some sort of mashup logo of the Romulans yeah, that was and the, the Kardashians. That was for the best. That was for the best. Just like that. Ah, just there's an energy to this scene and this idea. Well, and so the idea is actually very similar to the much, much, much worse execution of the same idea in the new Star Trek movie. You know, secret elements within various governments are conspiring to start a war so that they can Win. T- take out right. a threat, you know, preemptively. Why is this better than Star Trek Into Darkness, Kevin? Oof, God, do we <laughs> have time? I would say um, the internal logic, but for a few obvious shortcuts in identifying the roles of the Flaxins and the Romulans. But see, is, those are story shortcuts. Not those story substitutions. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, like, so... I can pretend there was a five-minute scene that logically led to the Flaxian and the involvement of the Romulans that didn't require a racial piece of, piece of racial profiling. Beyond that, the story moves well and intelligently. Everyone behaves as they should. People have the relationships they have. Like, Cisco letting Odo go without revealing his source internally makes sense for Cisco's position as a commander with a chief of security who is not a Starfleet officer. Like, that makes sense. Um... We haven't. We've actually seen the Dominion and how really scary they are. So it makes sense that a that two interstellar governments, or at least elements in those governments, would choose to attack them. Like things make sense here. There's an internal veracity to the behavior of everyone in this episode that makes a lot of sense. That they're, they're every everything works because the internal story elements are properly developed and. They're not just doing it so they can show the Enterprise coming out of the water. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, as far as criticisms, you know, I do think there's a distinct lack of Starfleet in this episode. Yeah. Um, and you run a risk with that. Now, I don't think the risk was terrible here because Andrew Robinson and Garrick 
the character are so interesting that as long as you've been watching the show, right. this episode should be very entertaining. Right. Now, that's as long as you've been watching this show. If you're a Star Trek fan who's just sort of dipping in and out, you're like, what the hell's going on? Right. You right. know? So I do I personally think that is a criticism. You know, it doesn't uh I mean it's it's almost in some ways less of a Star Trek story and more of a an expanded universe story. Right. Like, I mean, I would put this in a piece with like redemption, which I think is one of the better political story outings of next gen where it has you know explosions and energy and whatnot well, but to me there were still starfleet characters there who were upset about the what way going the klingons yeah. were doing things you know and this it's we have for the past 30 minutes we've right. basically had no no federation no starfleet it's all yeah. about romulans cardassians garrick and odo yeah and you know it it works as Deep Space Nine. And really, I, I do think that's going to be something that... It, it's going to be a criticism of some stories going forward. You know, DS9 goes into territory that's much less about the Federation. Right. Much less about Starfleet. Um, is that a good thing? You know? Uh, well, it, it made for an interesting episode. It's not like they abandoned yeah they did it well yeah so i mean part of it like i just love watching this up i mean when you think about it, it again not a ton happened in terms of actual change in circumstances <laughs> actual plot it's really all expository it's, dialogue right so you gave me this huge backstory to set up your second part but i didn't feel bored at any point which is another uh lesson abrams, for JJ abrams. trust your audience let your characters talk without shouting running jumping lens flares or explosions and you will actually create a compelling hour and a half of drama. Kevin is gesticulating angrily at my laptop. As if I'm talking to Abrams <laughs> myself. Yes, I am I am pointing emphatically. <laughs> I, you know, I do think there may be a lack of science fiction some, I, I to agree. some degree. Yeah, it's very much a political story. Yeah. Not really much about, you know... Anything. The human condition or technology or... Yeah, I, yeah. But like I said, like like I said about episodes like Redemption, I don't mind them. Uh, they I think they have their place in keeping the universe interesting and complex and you know fun to watch. And you made an entertaining hour of television out of it. So I can't whatever whatever the other flaws, I can't fault you for failing to entertain me. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I think the writing is above average, but not not perfect. Not yeah. not at the pinnacle. Yeah. Um, acting wise, you know, of course, Andrew Robinson is flawless as usual. Uh, you know, I really liked Rene Abrajanois. The rest of the cast was much more in the in the background uh, to some degree. There was there was no Cork or uh, Jake in yeah. this episode at all, um, which I actually think. At least a one-liner by Quark would have been welcome. Maybe Armin Shimmerman wanted a vacation or something. Yeah, maybe he was filming Buffy at the time. <laughs> um, you know, but the principal characters did a good job, and there were no off performances. Yeah, I love Paul Dooley as an Auburn tank. He's so interesting. Like, especially with Garrick. There's just so, like, there's practically, like, bolts of lightning jumping off of their bodies because of the energy in, in their scenes together. 
I do think uh, for the most part it's kind of a bottle show. Um, you know, it wasn't shot badly, but there was nothing terribly interesting until the Romulan ship. Yeah. You know, I did, I, you know, I was actually engaged visually by the Romulan ship, just, you know, sort of soaking in all the details. And until that point in the episode, I, you know, it's just like, well, here we are in Oda's office. Here yeah. we are in Garrick's shop. You know, there were some decent camera moves. Uh, you know, it, critiquing a director is hard to do, you know, until you've seen. For one thing, I feel like post-TNG Star Trek, uh, there isn't as much individuality in directing styles as there may have been in something like TOS. Um, or in just movies in general. Yeah. You know, they, they've settled into a visual formula. Yeah, there's and a groove. There might be some steady cam, there might be some close up work that's slightly different, but it's not like the director, you know, totally changes the right. look and feel right. of the show. Um, so, you know, Avery Brooks did a perfectly adequate job, maybe even slightly above adequate. Um, you know, for me, I think it's a four. It's, uh, as Kevin says, it's very entertaining. You know, it's never boring. Um, it certainly does a lot of heavy lifting as far as uh, plot building in Deep Space Nine. And, you know, just at the core, the character story is interesting. I think a five was never an option because there's no real... Okay, look, you know, I'm going to have to start modifying the way I look at things, I think, in Deep Space Nine, because it's going to become less of a sci-fi show and more of a political drama show. Yeah. You know, so maybe my new criteria for a five will be, you know, it needs to be well-acted, well-written, all this stuff, and it also needs to say something interesting about the human condition in its political right, story. Right, there has to, and I, I've said this before in, in next-gen reviews, where there needs to be a reach for a five, I think you, you you have to get the sense that we were trying for and succeeded at something grander. Yeah, it has to be ambitious, you know. Um, like you know, you, you watch Sitting on the Edge of Forever and you realize the people who sat down to write that episode were trying for something big and they succeeded, so they get a five. Yeah. Where like here, this was just good storytelling, told you know, acted, filmed well. Well, they're setting up their pins, you know. Yeah. They're, they're setting up their dominoes and. As that, it does a good job. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't knock them down. Yeah, you know? I'll, like I'll it say, has to knock it down, right, for it to be a five. Now, I think I think the dies cast has a decent shot at a five. I mean, the scenes between Odo and Garrick with the shape shifting device, I think, are killer. I, I think there's there might be something there to to justify five, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But I I agree. There's this is a very 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 good episode, and I love watching it. But it lacks a certain grand ambition that I think a five does require, whether you find it in a, you know, a science fiction concept, a character story, a social commentary, whatever is there. I think a five has to reach for something. And this episode does what it does extraordinarily well and is a, you know, it, like I said, I always get, I, whenever I think about it, this always feels like the moment I realized, oh, Deep Space Nine has the potential to be really grippingly interesting. And that makes me happy. And if they gave me nothing but this, I would be very happy. Well, it was certainly a strong contrast to <laughs> the first two seasons almost in their entirety and a good portion of the third season to this point. 
uh, you know, they've been kind of floundering around. Now, they had started to make strides with introducing the Dominion, with, uh, you know, they did a few decent Bajoran politic religious episodes, you know, but to some degree, Deep Space Nine was just never going to be good when it did standalone shows. Yeah. Because that's the whole freaking point of setting it in one place at one time. You know, if you're going to be in one spot and never go anywhere, you'd better really go deep into, you know, the politics and the the ups and downs and the, the situation in that spot. And so it's like, dude, why are you telling me a story about like a pocket universe that's forming? It's like, give me a freaking break. You know, this one spot is not going to experience a proto universe, you know, like right. all these different things, you know, it strains my credulity and it just, you're, you're missing the point. You know, right. if you were going to take the risk of rooting your show in one spot, you had better go deep. And, and I think, you know, doing, one-off episodes only invites a comparison to TNG that you're going to lose. And even if you had, you know, actors as good, writers as good, production as good, we're always going to remember our first love a little more fondly. So, like, you can't be another next generation because you're always, no matter how much you do, you're always going to fall fall short in that comparison. Well, here's the thing, you know, speaking of Michael Piller, you know, the first two seasons of TNG, uh, I think many people felt it was sort of doing TOS again, kind of yeah. badly. Not not badly, but not as well. But yeah. not not well because TOS was its own beast. It was about a certain. It was you know really about a triad of characters, and it was about just really doing way out stuff, you know, with social messages. Right. Okay. So then you're like, okay, let's make TNG. We've got a bigger cast. And we're still going to do these social message episodes. And in the end, it just, in, in, in one sense, I feel like the audience grew up a little bit. You know, it's like you can't tell the story with a guy with a half black and half white face in 1990 the way you can tell it in 1968. Right, and, and you, you, you can't just say <laughs> drugs are bad. Well, and so TNG really found itself when Michael Piller came on board you know, and said, you know what? Screw these message stories. Let's tell stories about the characters. You know, and they still had a strong sci-fi emphasis, but it was really about the individual characters. And it's when they really, you know, in these special features that I've been mentioning, you know, Pillar came in with a new focus, and he said every pitch should begin with fill in the blank here. This is a X story. This is a Picard story. This is a Jordy story. This is a Worf story. You know, because for Pillar, he felt the thing that would make you tune in would be learning about the characters. And that's not the way TOS was. Right. TOS was, you know, this is a Vietnam story. Right. This, you know, this is an issue story. This is a slavery, you know, whatever story it's going to be. You know, so TNG found itself in that format. It told great sci-fi stories, but the messages were subsumed in the character stories okay well how is deep space nine different i've always felt that the characters are less interesting in deep space nine but i i do feel that the setting the backdrop i mean they worked hard to create these interesting you know factions and forces and all this stuff and so to me deep space nine only becomes good actually good 
when they stop trying to replicate the character story success right. of, of, TNG of TNG and start doing Deep Space Nine stories. You know, this is a Deep Space Nine story. This is a Bajoran story. This is a Cardassian story. This is a Dominion story. But this is a Klingon story. Like, yeah, like those all, you know, it's, it, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head with the right word there, factions. Like, um, you know, Next Generation is about a world where everyone is happy and gets along. Deep Space Nine is a world where no one gets along. So when you focus, when you anchor your episode in how are these people responding to the current event and what are these people doing and how are they trying to outmaneuver each other, that makes a much more interesting story. And one that, I would say just more broadly, once you let the people you hired to be creative do their jobs, I think you get, if, if maybe not a better result all the time, but certainly just a more consistent, authentic result. Like once you let them just do the show they want to do, whether it succeeds or fails, I think you'll get a better product. Well, I've heard different theories of writing, you know, and one theory of writing I've heard is this idea that the the attributes of the characters should dictate the actions that occur on screen. Now, I think that theory fits very well with TNG. Totally. You know, on the other hand, I feel like trying to have the characters drive the action in this backdrop they've created for Deep Space Nine doesn't work as well. And so, in a sense, you need to have, you know, sort of grand historical things happening and the characters react to them in Deep Space Nine. Right. Um, that's not to say, of course, in this episode, Improbable Cause, there is a strong character uh, interaction between, you know, Garrick and Anabrantain you know, this animosity they have for each other and this water under the bridge that they've experienced, you know, this past backstory. So it is driving the actions somewhat, but it's still really about, you know, there's a grand historical thing occurring. You know, these two factions feel as if they need to neutralize a third force from outside, you know. Right. And the characters aren't really driving the action. They're trying to do their best within the action. You know, they're trying to make their way the, as best they can. You know, I, I, th I think that, you know, like the saying, you know, the villains here feel very Bond-like. Uh, the Bond stories are, are interesting, self-contained, and fun, fun as hell to watch, but that's the same thing. It's not about, you know, James Bond as a fully realized human being dictating the actions of the world. It's about the, the, you know, the British and the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese all responding to whatever event the movie posits. Well, yeah, and that was actually speaking of Bond. If, I don't know if you, have you seen Skyfall? Not yet. It is it is it is sitting on my desk. Oh, well, uh, it, you know, it's a decent movie, but one of my criticisms of it is that I felt like it's too much of a personal villain yeah. story as opposed to a grand issue story. Right. And I like the Bond movies that are more about a big thing that's happening. Right. You know? And, you know, we'll, we'll get to a Deep Space Nine episode about the James Bond movies, and I think it's one of their <laughs> better, certainly one of their better outings and better holodeck episodes and, you know, a fun, another fun Garrick episode. But I think that's a good analogy. Like, there's a sense of this is all these disparate factions these all trying to... These people are caught up in events. Right. You know? The events are bigger than the characters. In TNG, the characters are, you know, with a few exceptions, of course, you know, like Q destroying humanity. That's a big event. Right, but right. it's still about Picard. Like, right. it's about Q thinking that Picard is the person 
that he he hopes he, hopes he could become, be, yeah. you know? Like, it's about the character. It, DS9 is less of a character vehicle. It's more of a story vehicle, you know? And not, not an individual episode vehicle, but a, a grand yeah. story vehicle. And once they really get there, that's that becomes one of my favorite things about the well, show. It's these. taken two and a half really slog of a seasons yeah like even from a make like i like doing this project i've certainly enjoyed it i i enjoy watching star trek i think i've become a better writer out of it having to produce a you know five or six paragraphs twice a week about a subject of that i know about but dear god this has been the longest stretch of episodes next generation took us what a year and a half two years at least to do and it still felt like a blink compared to two seasons of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> and I love Deep Space Nine. I defend Deep Space Nine to the heavens. But dear God, Second Sight. I had to watch Second Sight again. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, so Improbable Cause is an eight. It's, yeah, a, I, it's a hopeful portent of things to come. Kevin and I both know that you know the show is about to get good, so we're, <laughs> we're very happy about that. Um you know, and you should be happy too, you viewers and listeners at home. Um, you've made it through. You've made it through the rough patch. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, finally things are going to start paying off. Um, you know, and yeah, I think this is the beginning of the, the good stuff. Uh, it's not going to be totally consistent all throughout. There's still going to be some stinkers, but... Um, hey, you know, masks was right there on the landing strip to all good things. It yeah, happens. Yeah. Oh, season seven of TNG has its issues. You know, part. Of, I mean, one problem with setting up your show as a character vehicle is that when you know it's going to end, it suddenly it's like, oh, we got to wrap up everything about this guy or or that character. You know, yeah. And it feels very artificial and perfunctory. Um, whereas with, you know. Season seven of Deep Space Nine, most people think it's one of the best, you know, conclusions or best stretches of, you know, storytelling, uh, you know, and I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that was, I remember just shit was hitting the fan from all kinds of directions. I just, like, that whole not, like, nine episode arc of what else can we throw at these people to complicate things? That was fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, eight for Improbable Cause. Uh, you know, hope you enjoyed this. Um, We'll keep talking at you for the next four seasons. Yeah. Actually, we're going to start Voyager soon, so it'll be an interesting counterpoint. Because it is also a very different show. Yeah. You know? And so and, we'll and I think it. also takes a little time to, to find its oh, sea sure. legs. <laughs> sure, absolutely. It's, um, you know, this theory about what each show is good at is something we should keep in mind. Yeah, know? I really like the way you said that, about uh, events driving the story rather than, than characters. That's a very well, good... And so let's see what Voyager is also. Um, and I suppose Enterprise, for that matter. Uh, if it is anything, <laughs> we need to find out what it is. Milking your intellectual property rights for all they are worth. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is... See, but I actually think that's one of the problems of Enterprise is it didn't do that It's enough. true, yeah. You know, like season four of Enterprise finally started milking. And I was like, oh, this feels good. You're yeah. finally getting some of this, you know, this this energy. You're, you're juicing it. You're, you're, you know, it's like I was feeling bloated and, and, you know, full of milk that needed to be expressed. You know, it's like, thank you for finally pulling at the teats of the franchise. 
Uh, <laughs> wow, there was a there's a metaphor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so improbable cause, very good episode, and um, we. I think there's a reasonable chance we'll be podcasting uh, this the the second half of this. So yeah, I think um, I think that's probably yeah. going to happen. So uh, we'll see you for the next one.